thanks Gabe, I really feel like those words, I can just feel them sort of get into my spiritual bloodstream. Hello, hello. Cool, yeah, so I thought we'd just mix it up a little bit. Uh, one, I'm conscious that we've got lots of mums here, it's a hotter day, trying to look after kids. Two, I'm conscious that kids find it hard to sit still. Thankfully, I was the best, well, most well-behaved child ever. Um, but I kind of think some of these stories in the Bible, kids, when I was actually your age, or when I say your age, there's a lot of different kids here, maybe uh, eight or nine or 10 or 11, I was a bit bored with a sermon up the front. So I would actually just read the Bible, read the Old Testament, because mum was pretty happy when she saw me reading the Bible. And I'd be reading all these tales in Judges about Samson and Delilah and Jephthah and Barak and Ahud and, and today Deborah. And I actually found them pretty exciting just by themselves. So I thought what I want to try and do is rather than kind of break open the story too much and do what a lot of preachers do, which is has its place, which is introduction, three points, conclusion kind of thing, like a good essay, is I just want to let the story kind of speak for itself because it is a pretty great story. We're about to learn about Deborah. We're about to learn about the honeybee and the thunderbolt. The honeybee and the thunderbolt. What on earth could that be about, Kaya? <laughs> I'm glad you don't know because if you did know, you really would have wrecked my whole sermon. I would have had to stop right there. But I just want you kids to know that you're such an important part of this church. And we've had, you know, in our various church ministries now, we've had kids grow from what? Like, I guess, Taylor. How old's Taylor? Ten. Ten years. And she's still with us. She hasn't left. (laughs) But I just want you to know that you're really important, whether you're young or really old. You're really important to me. You're really important to the Lord. He loves you. And he wants you to know a few things. And so, yeah, what I'll do is I'll just mix it up a bit today. As you know, we've been doing our little gathering at the end where the rows just go out and we stand and pray together. So we will do that today and and that that can go for as long or as short as you want. Um, But for now, we'll get into Deborah the honeybee. If you remember nothing else from today, remember this. March on my soul, be strong. March on my soul, be strong, exclamation mark. You'll see an exclamation mark later. March on my soul, be strong. If you remember nothing else, remember that. March on, my soul be strong. Have you got it? What is it, Gabe? Alan? Sally? Kerry? March on, my soul be strong. Do you know there's a famous, well, it's not so famous actually. It's not, I don't know why I said famous. There's a book that I like that I got and it was basically little prayers and verses that you take to people in trauma, that you take to people who've just had something really bad happen to them. And I always remember what it said at the start of that book. It basically said you don't give them a great big theological kind of construct. You don't even necessarily give them any words. But if they do want words, you give it to them nice and short, uh, succinct, things that they can remember. And I've experienced this myself in the world of aviation where we have bold face actions. You don't need the whole flight manual in that moment. What you need is the bold face action to get you out of that crisis situation, to give you a a fixed point when you feel like everything is just shattering around you. And so march on, my soul, be strong. I want you to just let that soak in your soul and sit there and it's sort of going to be like this ray of light that comes in the darkness in the future. I really believe that. March on, my soul, be strong. So have you ever encountered a problem? Problem. You know what a problem is, Addy? Have you, have you, have you had problems? Yeah? Yeah? What is it? It's kind of that thing that you look at and you go, oh, it might be about to hurt me and I can't do anything about it. 
who might be about to take away something from me and I can't do anything about it at this stage. Uh, I think we've all had problems and sometimes our problems are, did that, did that get big? Oh, good. Big on the screen. So have you ever encountered a big problem? Big, big, big problem. Who here hasn't encountered a big problem in their lives? Who hasn't? So everyone has encountered a big problem. So if I say to you, problem, what's the first word that comes in your mind? Don't think about it. Problem. You thought about it too late, Sam. Solution, thank you. Problem, that's a great segue. Thank you, Ben. We automatically think of solutions, don't we? Because that's how God designed us. You know, Adam and Eve actually had a problem, but it was a good problem. It was, here's the garden, I've given it to you. Now do something with it. Make it better. And by the way, expand the boundaries of the garden into the whole world where it's kind of a bit chaotic and stuff. Bring control, uh, bring beauty, bring life, bring order. Uh, so that was, that was, you know, there's nothing wrong with a solution. But here's some problems with solutions. Who here has seen their solution when you've had a big problem perfectly answer that problem? Like just comprehensively in a sophisticated, complex way, answer every part. Like has your solution been 10 out of 10 or has it been a bit lower? <laughs> Throw some numbers out. Normally an eight, that's pretty good. Eddie's a four. Wow, that's like, that'd be a fail in an exam. <laughs> so eight out of 10, four out of 10. But I don't, has anyone, sorry, what was that? I said problem. Yeah, that's fair enough. To, depends on the context. But in a big problem, I guess, well, what's our average? What's the average between four and eight? Six? So our average is six out of 10. So we know often our solutions don't always have a good answer to the problem. And often our solutions have their own problems. We actually know this in the safety management world. We know that whenever you bring in a risk management control, whether it be a procedure or a bit of equipment, it brings in its own problems. It always does. And so when our solutions often often have their own problems or the way we go about it, oftentimes what that can mean is that we can even actually forget about the original problem. And if we realise straight away that I mean, out of all the solutions in the world to a problem, how many do we, do we have in our finite capacity? How many can we actually really maybe bring to mind? You know, like, if it was a basic problem of hunger, for, you know, I mean, there's so many ways that you can sate that hunger, isn't there? And yet we tend to think the first one or two or three solutions that come to mind, that's going to be it. Anyway, all this to say that maybe there's a thing we should know about solutions as well as problems because our minds automatically straight away because of what's called predictive processing in the neuroscience world we straight away leap to what the solution might be our minds are actually predictively processing all the time did you know that you just did it problem solution how are you today is that what you thought did you oh darn it that didn't work very much Okay, Monday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Saturday. <laughs> so you know now, you know the game, but you know Thursday, Thursday coming. Anyway, so what I want us to think about though is if there's a problem and a solution, what do our kingdom instincts do? Well, what should our kingdom instincts do? And we've got such a brilliant example here in Deborah of both perhaps what to do and what not to do of what, it's, what it looks like when solutions and problems come together in a good way and maybe in a bad way. We've got a bunch of people here in Judges 4 and 5 that have a massive problem and they also have a solution, but there's also problems with that solution. 
So what we're going to do is just go through this story, identify the problems and solutions, and then the problems for the solutions. And what I want to just say is just make sure you read this yourself later. Again, we're in the start of a new year. You remember at the start of last year, this is number 31 in our mega series. We really want you to consider if you've never read the Bible before, or even if you had, to parallel us. So to actually be reading throughout the week, not just Judges 4 and 5 that we're focusing on today, but perhaps all of Judges. And if you're not up to us, then catch up in the next few months so that you can continue to read along with us. And you might want to catch up with people at home or talk about it as a part of your daily devotions and go, hey, what are you up to? I'm up to this. And what do you think of that? Just do it like a book reading club. It doesn't have to be a formal Bible study as such. It can just be some comments, comments around the dinner table or maybe around a coffee uh, out and about at that eminent establishment called Sleepless City. Uh, so anyway, make sure you read this later. And if you remember nothing else, so let's do it for Tim. If you remember nothing else, remember what? Oh, no, you've forgotten already? Thursday. <laughs> Thursday. You. March on, my soul. Be strong. March on, my soul. Be strong. If you remember nothing else about today, remember, march on, my soul. Be strong. So I'd like us to know, I think, two words that are going to help us as we go through the passage. Um, help us see problems and solutions, and they are pretensions and assumptions. Have you ever thought about pretensions and assumptions? So a pretension is just that, in the dictionary, it's a, a false or unsupportable quality, the, the quality of behaving or speaking in such a manner as to create a false appearance of great importance or worth. Now, does anyone here not have a problem with sometimes overstating their own worth or overstating their own value? Good, no one put their hand up, so that... I, that means everyone has at some point and probably in the future will have a problem with that. And it actually comes from the medieval Latin word, which is pretension, which comes from alleged. Alleged. And then the other one is assumption, and that is accepting something that is true or certain or acting that way when in fact we have no proof for it. And again, because of our predicting process, predictive processing, because of the way we are as human beings, and I really believe this is a strength most times, not a weakness, our strength is we can quickly process information. We can quickly go, okay, here is the solution. We make assumptions. You're making it. There's millions of inputs right now, and we're filtering that out, and then we're making assumptions about what the solution to certain problems might be. We have to do that, otherwise we wouldn't actually live. But... I think we should really be aware as Christians, as kingdom people, that there is probably a better way than just leaping to the conclusion, leaping to the solution, that there is probably a better way, there's a kingdom way of dealing with a problem. You know, as I uh, said before, there's a lot of pretensions and assumptions. And the trouble is, is that oftentimes our solutions are bloated with pretensions and assumptions. So let's read a little bit about 12th century BC. So kids, that's like far out. That is even before I was born. Mm. That's like 1,200 years before Jesus or thereabouts. That's like, uh, what, 3,200 years ago. Isn't that amazing? We're going to read some words from there. So it's been about 150 years in our timeline since the Israelites came out of Egypt, the Exodus. It's well and truly after Ahud died, and you could go and listen to our sermon from last week that Ben did so well. And what has happened is this sort of rhythm of 
the Israelites following God, giving up on God, and then following the Canaanite ways, which were really putrid and disgusting. I can't even repeat it in polite company, but it involved child sacrifice and a whole bunch of other things. And so we read from verse 1, after Ahud died, the Israelites, in chapter 4, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin. This idea of sold them is surrendered them, gave them over. And it's interesting because if you think about it, that means the rest of the time, God is protecting them. Because if he wasn't there, they already would have been given over to them. They already would have succumbed to a much more powerful army. They're sold into, verse 2, into the hands of Jabin, a king of Canaan who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Haggium. Because he had 900 iron chariots, he had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, and they cried to the Lord for help. So if you've got iron chariots, that's like, that's like a super weapon. That's a mega weapon. You can quickly rally around the, the battlefield. You can move from point to point. You're up on a platform, a stable platform. Archers can't hit you as easily. You can strike. It's sort of like having tanks almost. It gives you that kind of advantage in certain circumstances. So what we're going to do is we'll put ourselves there, right? Let's imagine that we're an Israelite man or woman. So for now, how long was that? How long were they oppressed for? 20 years. So for 20 years... You've been oppressed. For 20 years, you've had this problem of Jabin and his chariots. For 20 years, you've been thinking, what is the solution? For 20 years, you've been thinking, if only I could get a few blokes together, perhaps. Perhaps you've been thinking, oh, if only God would just strike them down, it would make it so much easier. But my real problem here, if I'm an Israelite man or woman, is assuming that the only problem is my physical problem, because this was very much a physical problem. Oppression meant a lack of resources because your resources were taken from you, your, your wheat and so forth were taken from you. You had to pray, pay tribute. At any time, they were the law of the land. They hated you. They could do all sorts of things to you. They're all physical problems, very much physical problems. But there's an assumption in there which is so easy to leap to with our predictive processor, which is this is just all physical. I need to have a physical solution to this physical problem. But it's not just the earthly hordes of Jabin and Sisera, is it? In verse 1, what are we told? The Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. This is the Israelites that came through the Red Sea. They had all these miracles. They had all this stuff going on (coughs) where God had moved on their behalf. And again, they start following the Canaanite ways. And this is a problem because God has intended that Israel will be a shining light, will be a kingdom on earth. That everyone else can look in on and go, wow, that's what it's supposed to look like when life is lived under God's rule, under God's righteous rule. I want to be a part of that. And when it was happening, oftentimes you'll see in the Bible, people could be grafted in, they'd come and be a part of that. But instead, we're told in Jeremiah that over time, even up into the time of the Kings and Chronicles, that the Israelites got so evil and putrid, they were, they were actually worse than the people around them. And they're just sliding into this all the time. That means if, if you're a little kid, you could be sacrificed. You might not make it to age 10 or 11. For 20 years, this goes on. And for 20 years, if you're an Israelite man or woman, you're going, this is a physical problem. And then, of course, if you're assuming that, then your solution is to bring about a physical uh, sorry, yeah, but to bring, out, but bring, bring about a physical solution. And it's in that physical solution that's already ill-informed that then brings pretension. And we get an insight into the pretension and the oppression in Deborah and Barak's 
uh, time with their song. So you have to understand the structure here. We've got the historical account, and then we've got this awesome song of Barak and Deborah. And you can actually get information about the battle and so forth by looking at both of them. Over and over again, the Israelites really wanted to remember things so they would have these songs. And these songs, depending on the age, would be in the top 10. And people could sing about them, remember what God had done. And so we're told in Judges 5, 6, uh, chapter 5, 6 and 7, in the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the roads were abandoned. Travellers took to winding paths. Village life in Israel ceased. Because of the oppression and because of their assumptions and because of their pretension, their pretension was we need to hide, we need to run. You couldn't even live in a village. It was unwalled. You had to live in some walled city somewhere. You couldn't just travel the roads anymore. You had to take the little goat tracks up around the hills. These were times of war and oppression. They were terrible times. And for 20 years, because they thought their problem was physical, they put up with oppression. They just put up with it. They thought that's all there is. 18, tell me what this is. 18 plus 20 plus 7 plus 18 plus 40. 18 plus 20 plus 7 plus 18 plus 40. Who's good at maths? 103. Thanks. But what is it really? Actually, it's 103 years of oppression through the time of the judges. So the time of the judges is about 400 years. And if you want to try and remember things as a rule of thumb, you remember that the Exodus and the time of judges starts at about 1400, 1500, goes all the way through to about 1000 BC when Saul shows up. For 103 years of the 400 years where the judges are ruling, it's oppression. It's the roads are abandoned. Travelers take to winding paths. Village life in Israel ceases. In that time, they've just given themselves over to the Canaanite morals, gods, religious beliefs, practices. I just feel like such a sense of sadness for them. Like as God said, come out, he's brought them through the Red Sea, he's shown them his power and glory at Sinai. And now they're actually in the promised land and they're just like the rest. They're just like the rest. They're just as bad. Now they're little kids that were supposed to be part of the kingdom of God. They were supposed to grow up into a kingdom man or a kingdom woman. They were supposed to know the glory of Yahweh. They were pro- Think about how many Psalms may, may not have even been written because they sacrificed their little babies to Molech or to other gods. I mean, how long? How long would you want to live in oppression? How long? How long would you say, no, 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 I know best. This is the only way. You know, whenever our vision loses its Godwardness, so do our solutions. Whenever our vision loses its Godwardness, so do do our solutions. Our solutions become self-centered, And our godless solutions soon become pretensions because they're built on wrong assumptions. So what what are your problems that you're facing right now? What what are your problems? And, and, you know, we often go, what's the solution? Here's a better question. I've got a problem. My mind's thinking of a solution. Don't think so much about the problem. Think about what you're coming up with as a solution and ask yourself, what are my pretensions in this? What are my assumptions? It's an easy thing to do. Just ask yourself, what is fact? And what is fiction? What are my pretensions? What are my assumptions? So what can we do? I mean, this brought 20 years, 103 years. You'll see the cycle repeat if you read through Judges. 
what can we do knowing there are so many assumptions and pretensions that they have such insidious, dark effects on us and our children? So it's a pretty complex answer, okay? It's a pretty complex answer. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits for the Lord. And in his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than the watchmen wait for the morning. I wait for the Lord more than the watchmen wait for the morning. O Israel, O Willow Burn, put your hope in God. For with him is unfailing love. He himself will redeem Israel from all her sins. With him is full redemption. Just imagine, instead of jumping straight to the physical solution, you, you will get to a physical solution at some time. God is not just a spiritual being. He operates in the physical as well. But before we get that, imagine if this was our kingdom instinct. Okay, I've got to do the... Blah, blah, blah. Uh, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman wait for the, you know, for the morning. You know what the morning is? The morning is anything physical that you could possibly put your hope in. Maybe for them, it's another army. Maybe for you, it's, I don't know, just the circumstances being changed or whatever. But my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchmen wait for the morning. Imagine that if that was our kingdom instinct. Imagine that as a solution. You know, Israel had quickly forgotten the acts of God, forgotten the birth as a nation that God had given them. Consequently, they lost sight of who they actually were. And consequently, all their solutions just became more problems. Their kingdom instincts were dulled. You know, our kingdom instincts get dulled over a weekly kind of cycle. We leave here, perhaps we're encouraged, perhaps we're not, whatever. But we get out there and, and over time, we're not actually thinking so much aligned with the Holy Spirit. The flesh can rise up. And I'm just encouraging you as my brothers and sisters, just think when you, when you come to your solutions, think about what pretensions and assumptions and maybe just have, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits for the Lord. Now, this is interesting, isn't it? If you remember nothing else today, remember what? It's hard, isn't it? Like before, it was so easy, but we're only, what, 20 minutes in, and I'm not going to go too much longer, but 20 minutes in, and we've already forgotten. This is a little bit of a working test case, isn't it? What was that? March on. Thanks, Eddie. You got it. March on, my soul. Be strong. Even I have to glance down because my mind's thinking about where I have to go next and all that, but march on, my soul. Be strong. So in the very kind of easy time of trying to remember you won't remember this unless you put a little bit of effort into it so i want to encourage you this year just get a few verses that you remember they're rock solid you can remember them in the halfway through a car accident you can remember them halfway through an aircraft accident you can remember them when you're in the heat of argument with a friend or a spouse or whatever but wait a minute i said wait on the lord didn't i didn't the word say that i wait for the lord more but now I'm saying, march on. <laughs> this is the great symmetry and the great truth of the Bible. The great truth of the Bible is that once you've waited, once you've truly waited, and once you have your answer from God, <laughs> you march on. The trouble with us is we're waiting and waiting and waiting. We're getting more information. We're getting more kind of theology. We're getting more and more kind of, I don't know, Bible studies and groups, and we're not marching on. Or the problem is we're actually marching on. We haven't even thought about God. We haven't prayed. So this is the symmetry of this truth is wait. When you hear, march on, my soul, be strong. So back to our story story in, in verse 4. Deborah, she's a prophetess. She's the wife of Lapidoth. 
which actually means torches. Some scholars think she's like, that guy didn't even exist, that it was just sort of a metaphor to say, hey, Deborah is the wife of torches of light. A bit like you can be, you know, the daughter of the sun or something like that. She held court under the palm of Deborah. You can actually Google it. Some people think they know where it is between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead the way to Mount Tabor. I will lure Sisera, the commander of Javan's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Hey, kids, guess what? A lady, a lady, a mother, we're told in the Song of Deborah and Barak, has just told the Israelites to go and face up to this army that is like way bigger than them. They've got chariots. That's like, that's like tanks. Now, I just want to imagine, kids and parents, if one of our mothers <laughs> stood up here and said, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded you. What would you think, blokes? <laughs> Sam's smiling. I think he's kind of resonating with me a bit. You'll be thinking, who is this? Who is this lady? Barak evidently thinks the same. He says to her, well, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. If you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. So for Barak, we'll put ourselves into his shoes. My problem appears to be that women don't command armies. They don't command armies of men to go and fight. They don't have necessarily the nous, the physicality, the guts. So that problem then leads to an assumption. The assumption automatically is she may not be a prophetess after all, because this doesn't sound right. Why would God, the God of angel armies, raise up a woman called Deborah, whose name means honeybee? There you go, Kai, wherever you went, honeybee. Her name means honeybee. And Barak's name means thunderbolt. So the honeybee has commanded the thunderbolt. <laughs> and like Hebrew words are... Hebrew names are so important because they often play on the, the, the writers of the Bible play on the names. It's a literary feature of the Bible that's been recognised in the last 20 or 30 years. They'll play on the names. So it's the honeybee commands the thunderbolt to go and the thunderbolt goes, what? I don't, what? Well, if you come with me, honeybee, then I'll go. And for Barak, with the thunderbolt, he's a thunderbolt. It, like, you can just see there's so much pretension I mean, his name means thunderbolt. He should have been the one to say, we are going. He should have been the one to be spoken to by God. Instead, it's the honeybee. But here's the thing. Barak hasn't gone. He's had his chance for 20 years. None of the other thunderbolts in Israel have gone either. Without God, Barak is not actually a thunderbolt. He's just a little bit of static electricity. That's all he is. And this assumption that he has, this expectation about women and about the capacity of women to deal with the incredibly real threat of chariots and infantry, it leads to his solution and it leads to more pretension. Because what his solution is, is actually manipulation. It's like, well, okay, if you are really a prophetess and you really believe this is from God, then you should probably come with me 
And I, I'm not sure, no scholars are really sure about his motivation here. It's hard to tell. But I tend to think the general flow of the passage suggests strongly that Barak thinks that she won't go. Barak actually thinks that when he says this, she'll go, oh, well, maybe let's leave it another five years or 10 years, whatever. So when the thunderbolt says, if you go, I'll go, and then the honeybee says, all right, let's go, you can imagine he's a bit caught out now. <laughs> it was like, uh-oh. <laughs> now he has to go. And this is what I mean about our solutions. Like, they just bring more problems. What if he'd have gone, I wait for the Lord. This is weird to me. I don't know why a woman's in, in charge now and all I've ever seen is men in charge. This is weird to, weird to me, but I wait for the Lord. My soul waits for the Lord. And in his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than the soul, more than the, the, the watchman wait for the morning. Imagine that. Imagine if he'd done that. He wouldn't have had to get himself into this little twisted thing. But in verses, uh, verse 9, Deborah says, Very well, I'll go with you. But because of the way you're going about this, the honour will not be yours, for the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh, where he summoned Zebulun and Naphtali. 10,000 men followed him, and Deborah also went with him. How often are we the victims of our own pretensions, our own reputations, and yet God still gets it done? What's interesting about this is it took a mother of Israel to turn the little boy, the little electrostatic charge, into a real thunderbolt. It took a mother of Israel to do that. No father could do it. No father could do it. And Barak nearly, nearly doesn't go. And by the way, because of his hesitation, when you see the song of Deborah and Barak, you actually see that half the tribes don't go either. When we look at... Um, Judges 5 and verse 15, there's a song and there's a lament almost about the people that don't go. The, the princes of es- Issachar were with Deborah. Yes, Issachar was with Barak, rushing after him into the valley. In the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. Why did you stay amongst the campfires to hear the whistling for the flocks? Like, what a picture. Why did you sit? So here's, here's Issachar like, following Barak. We'll see where the story goes shortly. Down into the valley. Deborah's there as well somewhere. And it's, why did you, Reuben, stay amongst the campfires listening and whistling for the flocks? Gilead stayed beyond, beyond the Jordan and Dan. Why did he linger by the ships? Asher remained on the coast and stayed in his coves. Naphtali on the heights of the field. So often our solutions and our assumptions and our pretensions, they just keep us amongst the campfires, listening for the whistling of the flocks, while other brothers and sisters rush to do God's will. Thanks. But, but just think about that. Like, think about that. Just, this is big and strategic and massive. It's that way so it'll get our attention. But it has so much application to every day. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits for the Lord. And in his word, I put my hope. Imagine if all the tribes had done that. Wow. So Barak has gone with Deborah and there's this massive army. And that doesn't make sense. But wait a minute. Let me think about the word of the Lord. Because I'm supposed to put my, my hope in his word. They actually had some records probably then. Early canon of the Old Testament. They would have had probably the writings of Joshua and Moses. They could have gone, wait a minute. This is not the first time God has intervened for his people. Maybe he'll intervene again. But they didn't. They're like, no, I'm staying here. I can't whistle, but whistling for the flocks. Uh, Imagine if Barak had actually not gone. 
They would have continued to be oppressed. So what happens next? Well, in verse 12, chapter 4, when they told Sisera that Barak had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera gathered together his 900 tanks, his 900 iron chariots, and all of, the, all of the men went to the Kishon River. Now, the Kishon River was like a floodplain, very close to Megiddo. Anyone recognize that word, Megiddo? From Revelation, Armageddon, there's been a lot of battles fought there. Napoleon fought there. You know, uh, ended up in a bit of a bad way with uh, his cavalry bogged, essentially. Deborah said to Barak, go. Barak goes. At Barak's advance in verse 15, the Lord routs Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. Sisera abandoned his chariot and fled on foot. What actually happened, if we have a look at the song of Deborah and Barak, is that the river Kishon flooded. It rained very heavily. And he had to abandon his chariots because they became bogged. He lost the advantage. God intervened. So Barak pursued the chariots and the army and the troops of Sisera fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, however, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, another woman, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. The Kenites were the descendants of Jethro, who was Moses' father-in-law. So they weren't, strictly speaking, a part of the Israelites, but they'd been sort of grafted in. And it appeared that they had friendly relations with Jabin, but they weren't actually that friendly, as we'll soon see. Um, and so we go, okay, well, what happens next? Well, most of us know. The song probably tells us a little bit more. And then it goes like this in verse 24, chapter 5. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Hebar, the Kenite. Most blessed of tent-dwelling women. He asked for water and she gave him milk. In a bowl fit for noble, she brought him curdled milk her hand reached for the tent peg, her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. That'd be like MA on Netflix, eh? Maybe even R, adult. But the Bible doesn't hold back. The Bible is actually, you can't say it's full of pretensions and assumptions. It's actually exactly the opposite. This tells you how it is. And so we kind of have a lot of pretensions and assumptions about women and what I did here was I googled Deborah of the Bible because I was interested to see what images they might have. And so it is quite interesting because when we think about our own pretensions and assumptions about women and we think oh, maybe they're not that masculine or whatever and you know, warfare's masculinity, blah, blah, blah. There's all these pictures that aren't a little bit blurry, but some of them are kind of interested. Here's the kind of, I don't know, Greek kind of Deborah. Notice they're all white, very white. Uh, then we've got the hot Deborah for a movie. <laughs> then in a minute we've got, I don't know, it's like Dungeons and Dragons, Deborah. And over here we're going to have Grumpy Deborah. It's the one at the back, not the one in front. That's JL. So Grumpy Old Deborah. And then, uh, yeah, you can see all the images there. There's many there. Uh, and then this one. This is sort of like the, the, the glorious warrior queen, Deborah. Go! <laughs> you know, and all the Israelites are in the background. I mean, that's my favourite, but Honestly, it's just another image that someone has presented. I don't know exactly, but we kind of get a feeling of who Deborah was. And I just want you again, mainly the men, to consider as we did with Bring Back the Wonder Women series or um, sermon, is what our assumptions are around femininity and masculinity, particularly with the Gillette ad that just came out. And I just want you to ask, is it possible for there to be such a thing as feminine power, feminine tactics, Feminine warriorhood. Normally, power, tactics, warrior, words like, words like that are for the men, not for the women. And yet, in 
They are all words describing Deborah. And yet at the same time in Judges 5 verse 7, it says, village life in Israel ceased until I, Deborah, arose a mother. A mother in Israel. So she's a a warrior hyphen mother. She's, She's a warrior mother, a commander mother, a tactician mother, a poet mother, a prophet mother, a judge mother. Now, d- does that actually just surprise you a little bit? It surprised me. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm the only chauvinist in the room. That, like, that surprised me that you've got this woman who's a mother and yet she's a warrior, a commander, a tactician, a poet, a prophet, a judge. She arose a p- poet, pro- mother, a prophet, mother, a judge, mother, a warrior, mother, so that the boys who were just little bits of static could become men. Now, wait, wait, because I know where that takes us. It then takes us into, okay, so her main role was just to make the men be all that they can be. No. Look, if you miss that, you miss the whole point of my Wonder Woman sermon, which was, do you remember, Imago Day. Male and female, he made them in the image of God. Male and female, male and female. If you only have males, you've got half the image of God. If you've only got females in any context of life, you've only got half the image of God. You are asymmetrical. When you've got male and female together, then you have, then you have God's image at work. And you see it at work in that valley, in the Kishon. You see it at work more and more, and I'll get into that in a minute. Problem, solution. Problem and solution. No matter what you think about women, I just ask you to wait on the Lord, to ask the Lord. Imagine what he might do with our opinions and our convictions. What do you notice as a theme about these verses as we get to the end? Barak said to her, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Very well, Deborah said, I'll go with you. Male and female go into battle. Bit surprising, isn't it, men? Now, we don't know what role she had. We're not told. How about this next verse, all taken from Judges 4 and 5. Wake up, wake up, Deborah. Wake up, wake up. Break out in song. Arise, O Barak. Take captive your captives, O son of Abinoam. What's the theme? The princes of Issachar were with Deborah. Yes, Issachar was with Barak, rushing after him into the valley. What's the theme? On that day, Deborah and Barak sang this song. The theme is male and female facing a real threat, facing the ugliness and evil of war, male and female together. Now, I'm not saying everyone needs to go and join the army. What I'm saying is there is a feminine type of power. There is a feminine type of tactics that you need, that humanity needs. We need each other. Amargo day, we need each other. We need male and female to work together. And that male and female, it's the strongest bond that we know of on earth. And it's supposed to be a representation of what the church is supposed to be looking like. I really believe in the future we'll understand this relationship in the new kingdom will be a really powerful one. And it'll be spread across all of God's people in some way. Pretensions and assumptions. Be very careful about the pretensions and assumptions you have about yourself, whether you're male or female. God might want to bust them wide open. Which leads me to the conclusion. God. I earlier asked, what's 18 plus 20 plus 7 plus 18 plus 40? 103. 103 years of oppression. So what's 400 minus 103? 297 years of peace, of where God was delivering them. 
And you look at Judges and you go, Judges is a terrible place. Judges is where everyone just does whatever they want. Judges is where oh, almost unspeakable things happen. And yet, in amidst that, God gave them 297 years of peace. Like, I don't even get that. Like, why didn't God just go, that's enough, enough, enough is enough, stop. And just end it all. Why all the bloodshed, the violence, the wars? We've got a real issue here that you should struggle with in your own time, which is God commanding bloodshed. This is the same God who says, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. You've got to struggle with that, my brothers and sisters. It's here. I don't have an answer for you right now. There are many good books out there that try to answer that. But I can tell you this. The whole way through Judges, you're just thinking, is there a better way than this? What would happen if God showed up as the mighty warrior? It kind of lends you to that and then kind of surprises you in a bit, doesn't it? Because we finally know we're kind of seeking the face of God, finding the face of Jesus, we finally find out from this nation of people comes a man who we believe is God and he goes to the cross, not with a spear, he he actually takes the spear. Now, I don't get it all back in Judges, I don't get it all back in the time of the Israelites where they're commanded to go and kill their oppressor, but I know that we easily put ourselves into the uh, the shoes of Deborah or Jael or Barak, well... Have you ever considered putting yourselves in the shoes of Jabin or Sisera? Because they are created in God's image. becomes horribly distorted. They get into the child sacrifice and all that kind of stuff. But God hasn't actually, I believe, written them off. Because he wants, because it doesn't say God just loves the Israelites. It says, for God so loved the world. So somehow or another, and I don't really get it, but I know something else is going on that I have not yet come to, that when he commands all that violence and bloodshed, he has very clear in his mind that he will become a victim of it himself. And I don't... Oh, it's hard. It's just hard to truly understand. But you kind of in judges feel that even when the Israelites win, they've lost in a way or somebody's lost. Someone's died horribly. Where's the better way? Here it is. Jesus carrying his own cross. And this actually has massive implica- implications for what our own victory look like, looks like. It's not... Killing the Jabins and the Siseras, we don't do that. Everything has radically and fundamentally changed since Jesus went to the cross and told us to turn our cheek, told us to actually serve our enemies, not kill them. And consider these words about the champions of faith in Hebrews. Just consider this, what victory might look like for you. What more shall I say? I don't have time to tell you about Gideon. We're going to learn more about him later. Barak. Sansom, Jephthah, David, Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned into strength, who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life. We like the sound of that victory. That's my kind of victory. That's my kind of faith hero. But it goes on. Others were tortured and refused to be released. That means they died there. So that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and holes and caves in the ground. Victory was for them. March on, my soul, be strong. But it wasn't to kill Jabin. It was march on my soul, be strong. It was to death. 
And Jesus has actually called us to be his disciples. And he says, if you don't take up your cross every day, if that means you're not willing to die for me every day, if you're not willing to sacrifice something like we heard so well last week from Sally in the, in the warm-up, if you're not willing to sacrifice, you can't be my disciple. You just, you're not going to be my disciple. And so when we decide and we wait on the Lord and we go, what's the solution to my next problem? You need to consider that it will actually require some sort of sacrifice. Oftentimes it will require something unexpected, something weird maybe. Something out of your norm, out of your ground dependency. March on my soul, be strong. I really want you to remember that. March on my soul, be strong. And now we're going to remember the one who marched on for us. Actually, he didn't march on, did he? No, because the weight of the cross was such that it brought him to his knees. And from then on, he would have been half carried to the cross where they nailed him. And then later, as they raised him up, they would spear him. And I know that this doesn't answer the problem of violence and bloodshed necessarily in the Old Testament but it certainly points us in the right direction, which is God himself has come and died for us. There is no other God like that. Let's remember him. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your sacrifice. I thank you for the examples that we see here, albeit flawed of Deborah and Barak. I thank you for the magnificent reminder that we need your love. We need your truth. We need your grace. As we come to your communion table and we see truth, personified in your sacrifice as we see it manifested in the elements, the wine, the bread. As we see that, bring truth to our souls, O Lord. And as we bring it back to the the chairs and we sit and ponder, help us to remember you, help us to hear from you, O Lord. May we march on. May our souls be strong for you. In Jesus' name, amen. So in your own time, just come forward, take of the bread. Actually, Ben, if you could break the bread for us today, brother, that'd be great. We'll keep the cup and we'll drink that together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your blood spilt for us. Thank you that you didn't give us the destiny of Jabin and Sisera. Instead, you made a better way. And because of that, the whole of humanity has hope. And one day we'll see in the new kingdom and the, and the new earth just how grand that really is, the new heavens, the new earth, the new kingdom, it's, it's all coming. And I pray that this year would be a year where our assumptions about that are broken open and you bring the reality of the kingdom. You, you hone to a sharp edge our kingdom instincts. And in the meantime, Lord, we drink to remember you because you love us. Amen. So what we would like to do now as we transition to morning tea and you'll see the announcements and so forth come up on the screen. So just glance up there uh, later on if you want, they'll rotate through. But just take your row or if you want to mix it up a bit, just gather and stand at either end in just a little circle, little cluster. doesn't have to be a circle, a little cluster. Uh, and just pray for each other. Just share. Maybe there's a couple of points that have come out that you really need some prayer from your brothers and sisters about. Maybe there's some assumptions and pretensions that are kind of just there on, your, on the periphery but have now moved front and centre. If that's the case, let's just pray. Let's pray that we are marching on this year, that our souls are strong. So 
Uh, and in fact, I'll actually put that up there to remind us. So yeah, let's uh, just, and again, just see if there's a small group and you're part of a massive one, just gently ease across to that. And then you can naturally uh, just go and have morning tea. So we're finishing up now. Well, yeah. But please, please do get into those little circles. Don't just head off. It's really important, I think. Probably one of the most important parts of our service today. So thank you. All right, so let's go. How about...